0: The Torah, our Torah, is a book that, like all books, all books, will be read and should be read differently and uniquely by all who open her. At times, we read the Torah objectively, searching for the truth its quote-unquote text and context, how it emerged, who wrote it, what were the cultural factors that played into a particular piece of that work, authorship, intention. When we do that kind of reading, that hermeneutic, we find in it a repository of tribal roots, a particular people, the Israelite nation, who lived at a particular time and place, who themselves created or were given this account of who they were. Torah as memory, what we might call history. There's no word in Hebrew for history. There's just memory. Torah as memory is an absolutely vital tool. It allows us to be intellectually honest with ourselves and our tradition. It allows us to be up to speed with modernity and post-modernity. It allows us to sit comfortably within a gestalt of intellectual honesty to find a home in Torah. But most of the time we read Torah in a completely different way. The lens of Torah that we usually employ is that that began as something called Midrash, whose root is Lidrosh, Darash, is to seek out. And what we seek in Torah is nothing less than a relevant message for me and my life, you and your life, in your age, not its age how you can hear Torah in your way, Adam. the Torah speaks to us in our particular idiom, in our particular place, in our particular time. The means that the Torah and all of the vast literature of Torah, all of its interpretation is asking one fundamental question of each and every one of us whenever we open it up, and that is, how can I help you? To paraphrase JFK, it isn't, What the Torah can do—it's not what we can do for Torah, but what Torah can do for us. So let's look at a little bit of Torah that we can use, because the Zohar, the Holy Zohar, the 13th-century mystical work, calls all of the Torah good advice, itin tavin, good advice. So let's look at some etzot tovot that emerge. One of my most favorite etzot from the Torah happens in this week's reading. Some of you might be familiar with this because I've taught it before, and you actually might find it on the website from a year ago, Pashad Vaera. In this week's reading, we arrive at Mount Sinai. Lights show the whole nine. V'chola amro imes kolos synesthesia, we see the voices, we hear the sights. al-Mosheh, the mountain is smoke and fire. And the nation stands at a distance, they stand at a distance from the mountain and say to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. We can listen. Don't let that God guy speak to us, lest we die. Don't be afraid. God has come to lift you up, to raise you up. So that you will have a residue of this experience that will then live with you in your daily living. That's what's happening, Moses says to the Jewish people. But they can't hear it. And the Israelites stand at a distance. The nation stands from a distance. Umoshe nigash and Moses enters into the dark cloud. The arafel sham elohim, for God is there, where God is. Says the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, of Nachman of Braslav. Says one should know Moses. He says represents awareness. Moses is that is is awareness of integrative knowing. And Moses, Moses, he isn't like the Israelites. One who isn't aware when he sees or she sees a hindrance, an obstacle, something in the way, immediately moves away from it. They stood at a distance. They said, we're not going near that mountain. We're not going near that revelation site. This is the meaning of the verse, he says, so the people remained at a distance. They didn't have awareness, so they stood at a distance. But when they saw the thick cloud, the hindrance, they couldn't come forward. But Moses, says Rav Nachman, who represents the quality of awareness for all of Israel, approaches the hindrance where the blessed God is actually hidden. Moses is nigash el a'rafel. Moses walks into the cloud of unknowing, Moses in each and every one of us, says Rav Nachman, is that part that is willing to break through to find God hidden in the dark places, in the confusing, the overwhelming, the "no, I can't," that can often grip us and paralyze us. The obstacle, in Hebrew, the minia, minia, Rav Nachman teaches, is the prerequisite for revelation. No obstacle, no revelation. Without it, the Israelites remain at a distance. Having distanced themselves from the terror, they also give up the reward that awaits them in the dark place. What was so terrifying, I'm asking each and every one of you tonight, what was so scary standing there? What was it that overwhelmed the Israelites, that made them fall back? What was it that said to them, too much, On one level, we could easily answer that any hindrance, any obstacle that appears creates fear. We say, no, no, it's too much. I'm scared of pain. I'm scared I'm going to be hurt. Something in there is terrifying, something in there that is unknown. I'm not taking my chances. I'll take what's behind curtain number eight. (laughs) Listen to this midrash. They took their places at the foot of the mountain. Vayitzatzvu This teaches us that God suspended the mountain over them like a barrel and said to them, "If you accept Torah, then good. But if not, here will be your grave." This midrash, quoted by Aviva Zornberg, is an expression of the heaviness, the weightiness of receiving revelation, of knowing something that is so fundamental to who you are that you can't do without it. It's so heavy. It's kavveid, it has kavod, it has gravitas. The mountain hanging over their heads. The weight of the Torah and the encounter with the one giving it. Aviva Zornberg says that perhaps the Israelites were experiencing an altogether human feeling of fear and therefore a rejection of too much goodness. There was a goodness, she writes, that violated, that penetrated, that assaulted There was too much feeling, too much excitement. Hear her words. She says, Moses is unhappy with the people that stand at a distance. In their reaction to God's voice, one element is tragically missing. Love. Only love would have made them able to tolerate the oscillations of standing at Sinai. Love, she writes, expressed by a sense of God's goodness and a willingness to accept that goodness. And at the root, she writes, that is the meaning of gratitude. Hakarat hatov in Hebrew, hakarat tova, means acknowledging the goodness of the other and allowing it to enter. But in gratitude, tova kfi'ah, is the sense of being forced or violated by goodness, of being compelled into a relationship that threatens one's autonomy, And when the people refuse to hear more from God, Moses experiences disappointment. Fear, not love, has dominated the people's response. And all to get a radical different way of seeing the cloud. So we have, on the one hand, the cloud of emptiness. I don't know what's in there. It's dark. I'm scared. I'm not going. I'm not going to school. I'm not going to work. I'm not going on that date. I'm not trying again. I'm not lifting up. I'm not standing up. I'm scared. I've been hurt before, I'll be hurt again. I'm terrified of the pain of the cloud. But along comes Aviva Zornberg, everybody, right? Did you hear this, what she said? There's another kind of cloud. It's an altogether different cloud. It's not the cloud of unknowing because maybe something bad might happen. It's a cloud of, I'm not ready for this goodness. It's kvya. I feel forced to receive what you're giving me. I'm not ready. I can't handle it, I can't expand, it's too much, it's too exciting. If one of those is called the unbearable heaviness of being, we might call the other the unbearable lightness of being. Perhaps we don't enter our clouds for all of those reasons, but either way, each of those is unbearable. In a 1961 film Through a glass darkly, the great Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman offered a compelling example of these two clouds. Those of you who recall that in the film, David, as a novelist, too circumscribed by his art, he confesses to his troubled daughter, these are his words, one draws a circle, a magic circle, around oneself to keep everything out that doesn't fit one's secret games. Each time life breaks through the circle, the games become puny and ridiculous, so one draws a new circle and builds new defenses. And then life breaks through again, and if you are lucky, we are forced to live in reality. David, like many of us, has become skilled in the wrong art. Maneuvering around life rather than living our way through it, So what does your magic circle look like, everyone? What aspects of your boundaries are unnecessary? Are you aware of your secret games? The games that you used to not enter the cloud of being, of becoming, of unknowing and knowing? I'll confess a secret game, so let me start. One of my earliest secret games was to hide within the magic circle of a story about being a waiter and being rejected by Judaism. I hid in that circle for 12 years. It was a comfortable place. In fact, it was really incredibly attention and gratifying. It was very attention-giving. Whenever anyone walked into a restaurant that I worked in, I could easily say, oh, I almost was a rabbi. I said, oh, really? What a special waiter you are. Is everything kosher? (laughs) As long as I lived in that magic circle, the story that I had woven for myself, I got to avoid what someone once called the avoid dance, the dance of avoidance. I got to avoid entering into the cloud of confusion around my calling. I got to spin a web of complexity, and interest, anything but enter into that place. I was afraid to walk into and feel how deeply disappointed I was with Judaism and with God. I was afraid to go back to the dark cloud. I was afraid to enter it and perhaps find that it felt really good. So many of you know that that story, I was broken out of my magic circle and forced in some way. To embrace life. Inexplicable as it is, leaning into life in this way makes pain bearable. We will feel more. We will risk more. But pain is the avoidance of life, not its intensification. Pain is the contraction before and after life. And life in between is experience. And wisdom is the fruit nurtured in life's womb. The Buddhists speak of Prajnagarbha, means the womb of wisdom. Wisdom must be brought full term and given birth to. It seems that the truth of experience can only release its wisdom if it is embodied by our experience of walking into those places. I couldn't help but think this week when watching Piers Morgan interviewing Tony Robbins, some of you might know who Tony Robbins is. He's a very popular motivational speaker, quite a big guy, six foot seven, big smile. He wrote a couple of interesting books back in the 90s. He's created an empire of self-improvement and self-work. I respect the man's work, but something about it always bothered me. There was something very irksome about someone who promised unlimited power. That was the name of one of his books. And as I watched him being interviewed, and we'll get to him in a moment, we'll get to something he said that I thought was extre- extremely important. I was impressed and troubled by a message of aggressive positivity. Aggressive positivity. All of my thoughts, all the time, create all of reality. in some powerful way, is still an avoidance of entering into, crowd, into clouds. There is a softening that comes from being willing to go to a place, walk in and get to know it, breathe inside of it. To, familiar our, to familiarize ourselves with those dark places means to embrace life in its dark side and in its light side. To imagine that we can undo all of those places with aggressive positivity seems to be a cultural myth that we need to revise. Aggressive positivity is the competitive nature of a game that will see 100 million people, each of them learning that if you are stronger, you can beat anything. You can beat anyone. You can beat any obstacle. All obstacles are there for you to beat them. Super Bowl. The older traditions confirm and reaffirm it is the very journey through life of obstacles that is the labor we must endure if we are to birth in ourselves anything resembling wisdom. The high priest of Jubu, Jew Jew Jubu, Jewish Buddhism, Jack Cornfield wrote once, he said, All obstacles are to be opened to. Observe it without identifying with it or taking it as who you really are. The obstacles that we are presented with break our trance with the race and jar us humbly back to the source. And they're often removed once our deeper sense has been restored. Let me give you one example of a different way of looking at an obstacle, and this will come to a close. So we looked at obstacle as dark, unknowing. We looked at obstacle as a repository of pain that needs to be touched, a wound that needs to be healed. We look at obstacle as perhaps excitement and aliveness that needs to be expanded into. And another way of looking at an obstacle is as a blessing, teaching us what our limitations are so that we can become masters within our limitations. One example this week that I discovered really, really moved me. A story that was told by Jack Reimer of the Houston Chronicle about Gitzrach Perlman. He tells the story of Perlman slowly moving his polio-stricken legs on stage at Lincoln Center in the fall of 1995 Once the music began, Perlman was as light as a bird and then a string popped. There was a stunned silence in the audience. Reimer recounts that what happened next, no one knows how it's possible, but everyone knows it is impossible to play a symphonic work with just three strings. But that night, Yitzhak Perlman refused to know that. You could see him modulating, changing, recomposing the piece in his head. At one point, it sounded like he was detuning the strings to get new sounds from them that they had never made before. Afterwards, the heaviness of his legs returned to his body, and Perlman said, remember this. You know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. Sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. The point where woundedness sometimes turns to aliveness is ironically not where we assert our will and fight through the line of scrimmage, but where we learn to surrender and accept our limitations as doorways on the road to mastery. This is the deeper meaning of the the nation stood at a distance. That there is something limiting in revelation, a revelation of how limited we are that allows us to work within those structures to make the most of what Robbins later in the interview called post-traumatic growth order, which was documented by the New York Times in March of last year. The notion that you and I, each and every one of us, are given these lessons, we're given these possibilities, and within that circumscribed place in our lives, we can become masters because of the limitations. The difference between a limitation and a threshold hinges on whether we use our will to fight against the great forces that have in an instant changed us, or whether we use our efforts to discover our connection to everything through what is left. That's poet Mark Nepo. Using that as a new form of an instrument to be played. Using that as a new form of an instrument to be played. To stand at a distance from that cloud and to say, maybe on the positive side, maybe I can react not from fear but from love. The last thing I'd like to say is from my friend, Abraham Inash, who wrote a poem for me. And the name of the poem is Come Here, Fear. Come here, fear, he writes. Come out from the dark. Sit next to me. It's okay. You're safe. Tell me, has anyone heard your story? Has anyone gazed into your stony eyes and rubbed your hunched back? I'll give you a blanket for your cold bones, bread for your empty stomach, and tea for your jittery nerves. I promise to listen and listen with undivided attention to your amazing story. In Pharaoh's reign, your heart was hardened over and over. Come closer, fear. I want to know what propels you to wake up mornings. Here's my hand. It's okay. Touch it. Come near. I want to know you. I want to bless each and every one of you that as you encounter the terror of revelation that is expressed as the Mount Sinai moment, that as we collectively, nationally, universally stand willing and ready to receive, to engage in conversations that before we might have avoided, as we enter into the dark clouds that collectively each and every one of us must face that number one, we have the courage to walk in. We have the courage to empower ourselves through love and through trust to enter ever so gently around the edges of what it is that we've danced around. And that two, that if we are avoiding it because it could feel good to expand into the possibilities of what revelation is waiting for you. And lastly... May God bless each and every one of you to play the instrument you have been given by the unique limitations that have been set before you. May we all know deep in our bones that the answer is always more love. Amen.